The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, has joined the effort to prevent suicides among active duty service members. The numbers are grim, 30,000 in the last 20 years. The DARPA approach seeks to prevent suicide by working what you might call upstream from conscious thoughts. It's called the Neural Evidence Aggregation Tool, or NEAT. Here with details, the program manager in DARPA's Defense Sciences Group, Dr. Greg Whitkop. Dr. Whitkop, good to have you on. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Tell us about this program, because typically the way to find people that might be at danger of suicide is through talk therapy, when they're answering questions consciously. You're trying to look at the unconscious, and how can that happen? Precisely, Tom. You know, what, what makes behavioral health screening so challenging, particularly in military populations, where there's such an enormous commitment to accomplishing the mission, as well as even more fundamentally to not never letting your unit down is you seldom ever see or hear people complain or, or seek out the help that they need. But if, if you think about it, this is really not that different than the vast majority of health issues. We don't know if indigestion or a heart attack is a cause of the pain until we get changes in EKG or see cardiac enzymes elevated. We don't know if a swollen thumb is, is from a, just a soft tissue injury or a scaphoid fracture until we get an x-ray. What we're trying to do with NEAT is to actually create a new way of seeing these invisible wounds of war. My proximal goal is to create that system so that clinicians have access to make earlier diagnosis, prevent more serious damage, and provide objective endpoints of treatment. The intermediate goal is to provide soldiers with that objective evidence, much like an x-ray, so they don't feel like they're letting their units down. And, and finally, frankly, Tom, my, my ultimate goal in this is to provide neural evidence to intentionally objectify mental health, to remove that stigma that's caused by this lingering Cartesian duality. And so people understand there really is no distinction between mental and physical health. And so what we're trying to do is get at those signals that the brain produces to give us this information so we can get clinicians the tools they need to help our troops before it becomes too late. So the presupposition is there is some wavelength, some frequency that you can measure that is a marker for thoughts that could lead to suicide? If you think about it from, from time immemorial, the way that we find out what someone, how they're feeling, what they believe to be true, is we ask them questions. They then filter those answers and provide us with an answer, and then we evaluate those answers to gain that information. I've been fascinated since I was in medical school with the brain's ability to process information in a complex way, take action on that information, and then, frankly, filter up whatever reaches conscious attention. So there's this whole domain that occurs within the brain where the brain will analyze, process, and make decisions without there being conscious awareness. An easy example I like to use is, is that of a baseball player. If you've ever been on a baseball field, you'll hear the coaches tell the batters, get out of your head, don't think about it, just let the bat hit the ball. And the reason for that is from the time a baseball leaves a pitcher's hand until it hits that glove is somewhere between 500 and 750 milliseconds. It's very, very fast, and, and it's far faster than the brain is actually able to process. In fact, if you start to think about it, your performance will go down. 
And so there's a lot of debates in the literature about what exactly constitutes pre-conscious versus conscious, what exactly the different capabilities of these timeframes are. What everybody pretty much agrees on is anything that is in a time domain less than 500 to 750 milliseconds is a time domain the brain can do processing prior to conscious awareness. So our goal is to just explore this time domain which we know has critical survival value. It can do incredible things and give us information prior to that conscious filtering occurring so that we can get the clinicians the most valuable information, and frankly, information that's never been available before. So it really is more the capacity of the brain We're just using a different aspect of it than we ever have in the past. We're speaking with Dr. Greg Whitkop. He's program manager in the Defense Sciences Group at DARPA. And how do you find those brain waves? How do you measure that activity? Do you put electrodes on somebody's head? Great question, Tom. And and the answer is we're going to take a, a multimodal approach. So, yes, one of the things that we are looking at is an EEG type cap and also peripheral signals that get into this less than 500 millisecond time frame. And and just to give you an idea of what those signals actually are. So you may be familiar with the EEG and EEG tracings that we have for a lot of different reasons. Within the EEG, there are these small deflections called event-related potentials. And these event-related potentials are part of the brain's processing of that data that has specific semantic meaning. And I got to tell you, I have been fascinated by this literally from my time in medical school. There was this this canonical experiment experiment by LeBay where he looked at, he asked people to move their finger as soon as they made a decision to move their finger and look at the clock that was rotating and see what time that was. And what that discovery, this is way back in 1983, that the brain was actually generating what's called a readiness potential which is another one of these event-related potentials, up to 700 milliseconds before the person was consciously aware they decided to make that decision, to make that movement. So they started 20 years worth of philosophical debates about free will and determinism and how the brain works and and all of that, right? But that fascinated me. Here again, this this brain is, is, is doing this capacity. When I was in my ophthalmology residency, I was fascinated by this condition called blindsight. And blindsight is this condition where your, your brain receives visual input, but because there's, there's lesions in the visual cortex and the occipital lobe that processes that information, the person's not aware that they've received that input. Yet the lower parts of their brain that are responsible for decisions about movement, walking, uh, you know, all kinds of decisions are still getting it. So you can actually have one of these patients where they could have them walk down a crowded hospital corridor, navigate between wheelchairs and, and beds, and, and not hit a single thing and be convinced the entire time that they were legitimately blind, hence the term blind sight. So again, another example of how this, the brain, these signals, these event-related potentials can, can come into play. Most importantly, Tom, and I, I wanna just emphasize this, if you think about what makes us human, ultimately it's our capacity for language. And if you think about the way children learn language, it's phenomenal. They have no, you think about how you and I learn a second or third language. It's very difficult as adults, right? But as kids, we can learn language, both syntax, the order of speech, and semantics, what those things mean without any conscious awareness or attention. And the key to that is our brain recognizes things like error, incongruence, meaning, 
with these event-related potentials. And so all I'm doing with NEAT is we are using those same signals the brain uses when you're a child learning a new language to recognize when a statement is incongruent or in error. The uh, classic example of that, frankly, Marta Kudis did this in, back in 1984. Um, she used an EEG and a slide projector and would present information that said, I would like a, and then a blank with my coffee. And then she would flash in the word sugar. And there wouldn't be one of these event-related potentials because that makes perfect sense to the brain. But then she put in this word, I would like a sock with my coffee. And the brain just went crazy with these event-related potentials. So that's what we're trying to capture with NEAT. So the methodology then is someone is equipped to be having an EEG taken of them. And then there's also an interview process as in the traditional method. But what it is you're trying to get at is what happens before they answer, basically. Yes. And and the other thing that we're, we're doing intentionally here, Tom, is we're going to have this be an automated process because we've learned there's so many different variables that occur when there's an interview, a dyadic type of situation, personalities, different perceptions, different concerns. And so we envision this being simply a, a computer screen that would present different statements to an individual. And then we would watch the brain's responses to those statements and look for their assessments, much like the sock and the sugar example to see what they believe to be true about those statements. In this case, it'd be mental health. So, you know, I instead of putting in socks or sugar, you could imagine, and this is just an example, but something to the effect of, now that I've returned from my deployment, I want to, and then blank my life, maybe say, I want to enjoy my life, or I want to end my life. That's what we're getting at, is some type of screening tool that can rely on these signals that have never been available to us. And so how do you know what event-related potential is the one to say, aha, this person is at danger of suicide? Great question. Again, there is no specific signal, a signal about a particular risk. Each of these signals would enable us to evaluate what they believe to be true about a particular statement, such as the statement that I just used. In mental health screening, there are multiple validated questionnaires around, say, depression, anxiety, traumatic brain injury, that these statements already exist. And so what we're doing is we're using these, we could use these validated instruments to derive what the person believes to be true about those specific statements. And that's what gives us the, the insight that is not currently available because we know again that just like with uh, soldiers don't like to admit that, that their back is hurting and so they can't keep up. And so they, they're reticent to go get a MR to see if they've got a herniated disc, right? They just want to keep going with the unit. The same thing with, with mental health questionnaires. They know that if, if they respond in a certain way, it might influence or prevent them from accomplishing their mission. And so we're just trying to give that objective metric like an x-ray or an MRI would do in, in other types of physical conditions. Okay, three questions. The first one, how is this differing from the techniques of lie detection? I am so glad you asked that, Tom, because in fact, if the BAA, which is currently out, by the way, and is available for everybody, our proposals aren't due until May 23rd and our abstracts are are March 29th. So anybody that's out there listening, please go ahead and listen and and make proposals. But one of the things that stays specifically in that is that 
when you what you just described there as far as lie detection or credibility assessment, what we, we write in the BA and what I am adamant about is that is a fundamental misunderstanding of this problem and what we're trying to do in this program. Because if you again, if you think about it, if I ask you a question and then you respond, there is inherent and inevitable conscious filtering of your response. We are trying to get ahead of those conscious responses. So anyone that proposes anything along the lines of credibility assessment or lie detection is automatically, irrefutably out of scope. And in fact, in my proposer's day, I told them, don't waste your time and don't waste mine, because that is not what this is about. And then the second two questions are kind of related. How will you assemble a sample to test how all of this works? And then what are the ethics if you find that someone in your test group is in fact a suicide risk? Can you act on that? from a medical standpoint, aside from the experiment, and get that person to some kind of treatment? I'm going to answer the second question first, because I think that's probably the, the most important question. So each of these performers will have their own institutional review boards, their own uh, process to deal with those exact kind of issues. And again, our, our goal here, Tom, our ultimate goal is to get to this idea of suicidal ideation and to answer those questions we anticipate the data sets will be much more confined, particularly in the proof of concept phase. So you could imagine questions more about along the lines of depression, anxiety, or even frankly, if you were to present a statement to me, and this kind of gets to answering your first question there of how do we establish this ground truth? If you were to present a statement to me that said, I can run a mile in one minute, I would know with absolute certainty that was not true. If you presented a statement to me, I can run a mile in 20 minutes. I would know with absolute certainty, yeah, that's that's true. I could do that. Now, if you presented a statement to me that said, I can run a mile in six minutes and 47 seconds. Whew, let me tell you, that is not my normal pace. At 56 years old, <laughs> I, I don't know. Now, if I was trying to save my wife or my child, you know, maybe I could get that amount of speed. But the important point here is this classification would show that I absolutely did not know that it was my it was indeterminate. And so that's really what we're going for. This is trinary classification around specific statements. And so you can see how well we're developing this proof of concept that you could use a, a data set and a domain set that would not have the risk factors that you're so appropriately asked that question about it in, in terms of suicidal ideation. So again, need is a is a proof of concept to see if we can do this because it's never been done in phase one and then in phase two i anticipate we'll be moving more into that clinical realm which will have some of those uh more specific implications that you suggested and finally is the theory also that if you can identify these potentials that are negative that would show a tendency toward a risk of suicide can those be altered that is to say can you change people's mental process such that they are no longer a risk at suicide so tom that that gets to the very core of of what we're trying to do in two ways so ultimately what neat is trying to do is determine what someone believes to be true about a specific statement so while there is no way that we could alter the actual event-related potential itself, because again, that's in this, this pre-conscious domain, the absolute goal of this would be that to alter the response in that if, if someone 
were to respond to the statement, I want to end my life. And uh, you and I, I would hope, and all of our listeners, if we were presented with that statement, that our brains would be going crazy right now with incongruence and that's an error and no, I, that is not correct, right? But unfortunately, there are a large number of people that their brain would not show that as an incongruent state. The goal of NEAT is to get people the help that they need so that instead of wanting to enjoy my life being incongruent for those folks who consider suicide where they're headed, that now after their treatment, it would be the same as you and I. That if they saw the statement, I want to end my life, that they'd have the same response that you and I would. So that's precisely what we're hoping to do is to be a diagnostic indicator at the early stages, as well as an endpoint treatment analysis in the end of, again, what someone believes to be true about those specific statements. Can I answer the question? Yes. And at the same time, you will have an objective piece of knowledge that this is a medical condition and not something because the person is weak or some other attribute that is often wrongly associated with the tendency toward taking one's life. Precisely right, Tom. You know, think about this. Think about if, if we treated heart attacks the same way we treat this. So uh, I tell you, my chest hurts. And we would just expect, oh, well, can you tell, is that indigestion? Is that a heart attack? We don't have any tests that we're going to use. I mean, we just want you to make that decision whether or not this is severe enough you might actually cause your death. It's ludicrous. And, and I'm saying the same thing with mental, physical processes, is we're not going to rely on or ask someone to make a, a diagnosis that they have no way of making. We're going to provide, allow science and these tools to give them that objective evidence that, yes, this is an electrical signal, just like an EKG is an electrical signal, and that you are not weak because of this. This is, this is your body's response that is a warning signal that we need to get you help. And, and that's precisely what I want to do, Tom. I want to eliminate the stigma associated with mental health once and for all. And I'm hoping this is a step in the right direction. And briefly, how does this all get underway? How do you start applying this technological approach and this, and this technique? Well, we, we are, as again, we, we right now the, the BAA is, is out on the street. We are soliciting performers. We are uh, hoping to form these tightly knit multidisciplinary teams that will have the capability to work in the psycholinguistic realm, as well as these event-related potentials, as well as some very sophisticated machine learning analytic tools to make sense of this information and put these teams together and see what they can come up with. And that's the beauty of DARPA, right? We do things that haven't been possible before. And, and so that's the stage we're at right now is we're looking for putting really together communities of researchers that haven't formed before. And so that's why I so appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Dr. Greg Whitkop is program manager in the Defense Sciences Group at DARPA. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Have a wonderful day. We'll post this interview along with a link to more about NEAT at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder 
of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, 
always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.